So, uh, that was not the video that I was expecting. I thought it would be the second one. Um, but because I'm going to be focusing more on the second one, uh, or the second half of Ezekiel, that first video actually kind of works for you guys to just sort of give you some, maybe a bit more detailed context in terms of that first part. Um, before I get, yeah, before we really get into the meat of the text, I want to tell you a COVID story. Um, not about being, me getting sick, mind you. Um, <laughs> I had a friend uh, whose parents uh, had a house that they had invested in, um, not their own house, another house, and um, had rented it out some, to some renters. And um, during COVID, uh, they were trying to get a hold of their renters um, because there had been some missed uh, rent payments. Um, and uh, sadly enough, uh, they were having a really hard time getting a hold of these, rent- these renters just by communication. So. Um, it got to the point, eventually, uh, where they actually needed to go and get into the place. Somehow they had, the renters had actually gone and changed the locks on the front door of, of the house. So they actually went in and they, they literally had to break into their own rental property. And when they got, came in, um, they found uh, the house in very dramatically different condition than they expected. Um, they went into the house. Uh, there were turned over um, furniture. Um, the house stank like things had died in there. Um, they found a, a room full of like used diapers that were just piled up in a whole corner. Uh, they went upstairs and they were uh, crayon. There were like crayons and markers all over the walls. Little kids had been drawing all over the walls. And then they went down into the basement. They went in the basement and they found um, literally cases of snakes, live snakes. Okay, and uh, and then and and then they found tons of drugs, like marijuana everywhere. They found cocaine. They found heroin. Um, they, I think they might have even found some spiders. But then, but then, and and the thing is, then they started cleaning the house up, right? Because this is like an absolute disaster. They have no idea where the renters have gone. The place has been abandoned for weeks. Okay, so then they, they start cleaning the house, and um, the smell is like next to impossible to get rid of. And at one point, they realize, wait a second, some of the drywall is rotting. So they open up the wall, and the wall is full, like from the drywall to the outside area of, of, the, of the wall of the house. It's full of rat manure, okay? So the rat, they, they figured that the rats that were being used to feed, feed the snakes had escaped, gone into the walls, and just like nested the whole house, okay? And all the mess that goes with that. And they, they have no idea where these people are. No way to get a hold of them. They've lost rent. They have like tens of thousands of dollars in damage that they need to cover. Um, what do you do in a situation like that? What do you think? Yeah. And the other thing, too, is now that they have to, now they actually have to get, legally, the renters kicked out of their own property that they own. Because that hasn't happened yet. Thankfully, which is really hard because it's COVID, right? Because, like, obviously the government's like, well, no, we want to make sure that injustice doesn't happen and, like, nasty landlords don't kick people out to save money because everything's tight because it's COVID, Right? By the grace of God, they were able to get that them legally removed so they could actually go in and start renoing the house, literally from the bones up. Should you forgive someone like that? 
What does forgiveness cost in a situation like that? In terms of stress? We're, we haven't even talked about money yet. You know? In terms of emotional and physical labor? And the thing needs to be stripped to the bones and then completely recreated. And I want you to think about that. That's, that's kind of like the situation that Ezekiel is looking at when he looks at Israel, when God looks at Israel. The basic story of the Old Testament is that God takes the people from himself, for himself. He takes them out of being in a place of slavery and bondage, and he gives them a space to live. Beautiful space. It's basically supposed to almost be like a recreated Garden of Eden where people can flourish, where people can be so wise and successful, where people can be blessed, where they can be fruitful and multiply. And then everybody else around this land gets to hear and see the effects of what obedience, obedient trust in God looks like worked out. Great project, it sounds like. And it goes horribly wrong. And so the, the part of the Old Testament that we are in, we've been in for a little while, is where basically things have come to the brink. God has been warning his people through pro- prophets for a very long time. <clears throat> and he's basically said that the consequences, the ultimate consequences, is that you are going to have the most horrific things that you can imagine happen to you. Um, you're going to lose your children. You're going to lose your houses. You're going to lose your wives. You're going to lose your personal dignity. You're going to lose your land. You're going to lose your, your, your sense of cultural identity. Because you've been treating me, who's your God, who's who's almost like the divine equivalent of your people's husband. You've you've committed adultery with with so many other gods, so many other nations. Nations who don't even, we don't even, they don't even have the same kind of family history. They don't have this history with, with you that I do. So why are you treating them like you should treat me? And you don't understand, you don't listen to me. Your heart is so hard, your neck is so stiff. You never turn when I tell you to turn. You don't trust me when I tell you to trust me. And so you're going you're gonna to get out. Get out of my land. This is my house. You've made, I have to cleanse the thing from the top to bottom. And Ezekiel happens to be this guy. He's about 25 years old when the, fir- the first time that Nebuchadnezzar II, the, the king of Babylon, comes. He's the most feared, mighty king in the, in, in the world at this, at this point. He's known for being an absolutely merciless warrior. He comes into uh, enter Jerusalem, and he sacks the city. He's going to do this twice. He goes in. He takes a bunch of exiles out from Judah. He takes uh, the, basically the best, the cream of the crop, um, all, the, all the best, the ch- children, nobles, um, officials, and then replaces them, swaps them over. Um, the two, two uh, famous Bible characters who get taken away in this, uh, this first exile a guy named Daniel. You might have heard of him. He gets chucked in a lion's den. We're not going to talk about him very much today, but uh, he's significant to the biblical story. And then Ezekiel. Ezekiel's about 25 years old when that happens. I'm 29 years old. Um, and when Ezekiel has the first visions that the book of Ezekiel opens with, he's, he's just about 30 years old. And he's um, part of the, the group of uh, Israelite people called the priestly class. He's from the tribe of Levi. And when, he's, he, when he turns 30, he's supposed to get into his career as a priest. He's not going to be doing that. And the reason is, is he's stuck in a refugee camp on the shores of an irrigation canal in Babylon. And so he's there, 
And essentially, the Godmobile shows up. <laughs> and it's, it's a weird, crazy experience, okay? And you're like, wait, the Godmobile? And I'm like, well, just remember that weird, the weird throne chariot thing where there's like these crazy creatures with like all these wings and like there's wheels full of eyes and like animal, these angels that kind of look like animals and they kind of look like people and and there's this big sound, like a big thunderstorm, and you're going like, what? What is this? It's like a tornado got through a zoo, and then there's like a burning man in the middle. You know, and you're like, what is this? What is the point of this? And there's a whole lot of deep symbolism in this vision that I don't have time to get into. And I guess you could almost say like, Batman has the Batmobile, God has the Godmobile, just leave it at that. Um, but he sees this, God commissions him, he's like, you are gonna, you're going to tell the people what I'm going to tell you. And they're not going to like it, they're not going to want to listen to you, but you need to trust me. And I'm going to make you, they're so stubborn, I'm going to make you more stubborn than they are, you know? And so that's the beginning, that's the way that Ezekiel's prophecies open. And... Um, the, then question, Tim Mackey, uh, who's the sort of the scholar mind behind the Bible Project, puts the question really well. He says, what the heck is the Godmobile doing in Babylon? That thing is supposed to be in the temple. It's supposed to be in the most holy space. God is sacred. He's powerful. He's unique. He's got a character that's merciful and just, unlike any other person or God that humanity has ever come up with or encountered. And so... Uh, you find out the answer to that, that question in Ezekiel 6. Um, so if you want to just turn there quick in your Bibles with me. Um, and this is what uh, God says to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 6, verse 1. The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, which is the classic term that God calls Ezekiel all the way through the book. It's funny, Ezekiel actually never gets called by his first name with God. Uh, he's one of the, the only prophets where that happens. God always will approach Ezekiel, and he almost has like uh, Ezekiel on like a, an on-off switch. He'll be like, he'll come to him, and he'll be like, my hand comes on you. You're not going to be able to say anything. When I release you, then you can open your mouth. And whatever you say, whatever I put in your mouth, you're going to say. And he never calls him by his first name. He comes up, he says, son of man. And then he says, tell him what he, he's supposed to say. He says, uh, Set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, You mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord Yah, Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to the mountains and the hills, the ravines and the valleys. Behold, I, even I, will bring a sword upon you. And I will destroy your high places. The high places are basically all the spots where Israel goes to worship other gods or to worship uh, Yahweh in uh, using worship practices that are way not at all what God asked for, but way more like the, the gods of the other nations um, and not in the temple in Jerusalem. He says, I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols. And I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols and I will scatter your bones around their idols, their, your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined, so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed, your incense altars cut down, and your works wiped out. And the slain shall fall in your midst, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. That's a really important phrase. 
Yet I will leave some of you alive. When you have among the nations some who escape the sword, when you are scattered through the countries, then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that is departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. And they will be loathsome in their own sight. They'll be gross for the evils that they have committed, for all their abominations. And they shall know that I am Yahweh. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. And what's significant about that language of they, they will know that I am Yahweh is that Yahweh is actually quoting himself. The first time that language shows up is actually in the Exodus story, which I kind of mentioned earlier. Um, in that story, the language um, is used slightly differently. Um, you don't have to turn there, but I'm just going to read this. Uh, Exodus 6 says, um, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am Yahweh. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am Yahweh. And what's interesting, what's basically happened, if you, if you do a, I, before I, I got here, I did a little bit of a, a Bible gateway search um, for that phrase. You will know that I am the Lord or I am Yahweh. If you look at the number of times that shows up, um, in Exodus it shows up about 10 times. Every time that God uh, brings a plague on the people of, of Egypt to basically punch them to say, hey, let my people go. Let them go. Let them go. I'm Yahweh. Let them go. Okay? And Pharaoh doesn't. Pharaoh stiffens, he hardens his heart. He's got a really hard, stony heart. Um, basically, uh, yeah, that's, that, that phrase, it's almost a reminder of this is who I am. You're going to experience what my name is. You're going to have this happen to you. And for the people of Israel in that scenario, it's, that's actually really good. Because it means that the, the people who are bullying them are, are basically being made to let go of them. That's, that's actually about the beginning of their redemption, their freedom from slavery. Now, in, in Ezekiel's case, if you look at the same instance of how many times that language, then they will know that I am Yahweh shows up. It shows up about 73 times. Okay? It's huge. And massive amounts of those times, it's actually that experience of being, they will know that I am Yahweh. They will, then they will know that I am Yahweh. It's actually when that experience of judgment happens to the people of Israel themselves and not to their oppressors. And so that language of actually experiencing who God is, of actually knowing the significance of his name, that he's the Lord who uh, is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but at the same time will by no means clear the guilty. That experience is being... It's almost like Ezekiel is seeing how, and God is using Ezekiel to show how when the people will not listen to him, 
that experience of God's justice for their good in the experience of the exodus can be turned to their harm in the experience of the exile. And it's, and it's a wake-up call. It's a, it's a reminder to take him seriously. Take his word seriously. A number of weeks ago, I talked about Isaiah and how Isaiah was talking about how the, the problem of the blur what happens when we don't recognize the difference between Yahweh and the other things that we're tempted to worship? We start treating him in a way that actually isn't true to who he is. It's actually more true to either the way that we are or the way that we want our sort of the things that we might otherwise place our trust in operate. And we get really confused. And when that happens for long enough, we start doing horrible things. We start breaking all sorts of commandments. We start, having, we start hating our brothers and sisters in our heart. We start lusting and craving for things that are not ours, including um, other people sexually, other, other things materially, um, statuses that we shouldn't have the, the sense of value and significance and security that we often place in things. We fi- instead of finding our status, significance, and security in God himself, our creator who loves us, who, who wants to, us to know him and his goodness and his blessing in our lives, we expect that goodness and blessing from other things. So th- this, lang- this excess language is flipped because God wants, his, he wants to shock his people awake so they can actually recognize where they are, that they're living in an, a hellhole um, that they're creating. And even though it, it seems like it might be nice right now, disaster has come. Ezekiel's experiencing that. He's sitting in a refugee camp and more is still to come because this Nebuchadnezzar hasn't invaded yet. Um, in the earlier part of Ezekiel. And so it get, basically gets to the point, as you saw in the video, where the, the presence of God, um, Ezekiel sees the presence of God get up out of the temple and leave there, and actually he goes to be with his people in Babylon, showing that he's, he's basically left the city to its own um, end in situation. And guys, I think when we think about this stuff, sometimes it's, it's really easy to think, to think that was then, this is now. But God is a just God. And that justice actually flows from his goodness. It flows from his love. Sometimes people will talk about the justice and love of God in a way that almost make them like two separate things in God. Like he's just, but he's also really loving. And like, you know, God loves you, but he hates sin, so he's got to punish you. It's kind of like, almost like God's like, his like, little, I don't know, fine print clause at the end of sort of what it means for God to love you, okay? That's not, that's not an accurate picture of the character of God. If, if someone breaks someone or something that I love, if someone breaks something or someone that God loves, it, if, if I'm broken, say, and someone who's supposed to take care of me doesn't do anything about that? You think about if you have a kid who's experiencing a bully at school, maybe. You experience maybe criticism or even bullying or mis- mistreatment from a boss or a neighbor. If someone doesn't feel angry about that with you, how does it make you feel? It, makes, it hurts. It feels, it feels actually like a kind of betrayal. And that's because we actually recognize that justice and love are actually like this. They're not two different things. And that's really important for us to recognize. God's justice and his mercy are not like, I don't know, the bad side and good side of God. 
Sometimes the, the justice of God scares us and actually should scare us. In some ways, that's part of what it means to fear God properly, actually to recognize who he is. And if you're listening to that and you're going, well, I mean, that, that sounds weird. Like, God should be, isn't God, like, shouldn't he just be nice all the time? I mean, I think I just gave a pretty good explanation as to why that doesn't actually work and actually why we don't even really want that. We don't want a God who's only nice. We want a God who actually does justice, who actually does get angry. Because we recognize that that's actually integral to what love is. And, and, so the, but, and, and not only that, but it, it kind of harkens back to that story about the, the, that horrible situation with that house that I told at the beginning of, of my message. It's like, we feel there should be justice for those people. Right? Um, and, if, and if somehow there was a kind of generosity, can you imagine what it would be like if the owners of that house said to them, you don't have to pay. Like the weight of that? The significance of that? And when we think about it in those terms, when we think about what sin actually, this is, sin ought to be destroyed, guys. Sin wrecks our lives. It ruins relationships. It corrupts societies. It flips things over that shouldn't be flipped over. And we need God to do justice for us. And the thing is, is what is, what is God going to do? How is he going to actually save his reputation and make sure that his name, that he is the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. How is that full picture of who God is and everything he's promised to his people, how, are, how is that going to happen in this situation with this people who's just ruined and corrupted so much and made God look like horrible and like useless and like God couldn't even get his people to follow his commands? Who, who is this God? How powerful is he anyway? And all the nations are recognizing this. They're looking at this story. They're looking at this situation. What is God supposed to do? You think about it even in our own terms. We think about churches or, or ministry organizations with leaders who have made an absolute travesty of the name of Jesus Christ. People we've known who participated in abuse, who sometimes institutionalized that abuse. And we shudder and we go, I don't want to be associated with that. Because they bear Jesus' name, and I bear Jesus' name. What is God going to do about that? And this is why when we read the book of Ezekiel, and we come across these things that are weird and disturb us, Ezekiel has some language that is the, the strangest and most disturbing in the whole Old Testament, let alone the whole Bible. And it's meant to, it's meant to shake you awake to what sin actually is and what it does and the consequences of it, not just at a personal level, but at a societal level. And we need to recognize that. Because sometimes we can think about sin as just like acts, bad things that I do. And sin is not just that. It's a power that holds us in captivity and bondage. And, and it's weird because we can get in this place where we're self-righteous and we think we're fine. And then we trust in that, self, in that righteousness instead of God, which is like the most weird, twisted thing. Because it's almost like doing these things in God's name and then trusting that those are the things that are going to save me 
and then acting like that's making you in right relationship with God when he has nothing to do with any of those things. Not internally, at the heart. And so the solution comes in Ezekiel 36, which is kind of the heart and the, one of the most beautiful expositions, explanations, unfoldings of the good news of what Jesus does with us and what Jesus is going to do with Israel to make them a brand new people. Ezekiel 36, um, verse 16. The word of Yahweh came to me, son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity. It's like you filled my land with dirty tampons. Like I said, it's weird and it's gross. So I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned my holy name. And the people said of them, these are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to go out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations to which they came. And therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which is profaned, has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord Yahweh, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you, from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will, cl I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh that goes <laughs> and I will put my spirit in, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God and I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. And I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. And I will make the fruit of the tree and increase the field abundant that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. And then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord Yahweh. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded by it for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord Yahweh, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited. Ezekiel's sitting in a refugee camp. 
You think about the images of refugee camps you've seen, the shacks and the smell and the people walking around lost and the little kids walking in, around in old, dirty clothes. And you think about what it sounds like to the, it's the cities that you left, a smoldering ruin. They're going to be rebuilt. There's going to be gardens in them. And you're going to hear the laughter of children. And they're going to be re-inhabited. It's just amazing. It's a beautiful, amazing picture of hope. And then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am Yahweh. I have spoken and I will do it. Should sin be forgiven? By all accounts, we know that it doesn't deserve to be. And yet this is the holiness of God, not just in the fact that he is authentically merciful and authentically just, and that he destroys evil to the very root, but then he can do something that nobody else can do in that he can resurrect the dead. And this is what, Ezekiel, what happens. The hand of Yahweh was upon me. He brought me out in the spirit. This is Ezekiel 37. In the spirit of Yahweh and set me down in the middle of a valley. Close your eyes, you imagine this. It was full of bones. Think about like, if you could imagine the Rouge River Valley, you know, if you cross the highway, you're going down the 401. It's, it's a beautiful forest. Imagine it's desolate. It's like clear cut. And the whole thing is just a cemetery. It, and not only it's a cemetery, there's no headstones. It's just bones. It looks like there's a whole bunch of people just massacred there, and it's just desolate bones. It's like the boneyard in The Lion King. Okay? And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. <laughs> and he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Oh Lord Yahweh, you know. And then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of Yahweh. Thus says the Lord Yahweh to, to these bones, these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord Yahweh, come from the four winds, all the places that Israel has been scattered. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me. And the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones 
are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off, and therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know. Say it with me. I am Yahweh. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares Yahweh. And he says this in verse 24. My servant David shall be king over And they shall all have one shepherd. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary, where is it? Not in Babylon, not far away from the people, but in their midst forevermore. Guys, that's what we walked into this evening. The presence of God making us alive. Waymaker, miracle worker, light in the darkness. That is who he is. And even when we don't see it, he's working. Even when we don't feel it, he's working. He never, ever stops working. Why? For the sake of his name. Isn't that good news? It's not ultimately about you. It's not ultimately about me. That is so securing. Because it means ultimately that the whole thing doesn't ride on you. It doesn't ride on your shoulders. It doesn't ride on your performance. It doesn't ride on whether or not you get your act together or you screw it up another hundred times or a thousand times. It's on the fact that he is about vindicating his reputation and his character. And so the whole world knows that there is one God and his name is Yahweh and his name manifests in a human person is Jesus Christ the Lord. And that he reigns and no other God does, no other human being does, no other idol, no other reality. Money doesn't get to claim that. Sex doesn't get to claim that. Power, political power, guns, weapons, it doesn't, no power in heaven or earth actually gets to claim the kind of strength and power that our God does. And he lives in our midst Well, not because we deserve it, not because we've made the space ready, not because of anything like that, but because he's decided to resurrect and take a people for himself, and nobody will stop him. And that is our hope. That is the hope when you you encounter people in your life, 
whose lives look like that horrible wrecked house that I told you about. When people text you and they say that they have no hope, when you look at your broken body, you look at your mental illness, you look at your experience and your habituation of sin, you go, how in the world am I going to get out of this? My habits don't change no matter what I do. And I made this commitment to Jesus so long ago. And I'm not free and I want to be free. And Jesus tells a story in Luke 15 about a, a kid who gets lost. And he squanders his father's inheritance, his father's money with prostitutes. And then he has the gall. He doesn't even realize, he doesn't know who the, he doesn't, he doesn't know his father's name. So he, he says, I'll just go home and I'll get him to make me like his servant. That's what I'll do. And then maybe he'll take me back. And his father sees him a lot. You guys know this story. He sees him a long way off and he goes and he runs and he goes and he gets him. And what does he do? The guy's filthy. He smells like pigs. He's been feeding pig. Jewish guy's been feeding, feeding pigs, okay? For years. And he stinks to high heaven. He's gross. And he comes home. His dad does not care. Do you know the father doesn't care? Because his son was slaughtered for us. That's why. That's the wondrous horror of the mercy of God is that all of our sin, all of our iniquities, everything you deserve gets placed on him for you and for me. And that, that humbles us and it, recognize, it helps us recognize the glory of who God is, the immensity of his grace, that it costs something. It's not cheap. It's not cheap for him. And, and his father runs, he wraps his son, he cleans him, and he brings him home. And what does he say to the older brother when the older brother will not join the party? He says, this, my son, was dead. He was lost. Now he's found. He's alive. You need that today. You and I need that today. It's about the presence of God. See, so gets family. It's not about ultimately pulling ourselves together. It's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. Habit change, you can learn all sorts of things about habit change. I've been thinking about this stuff for like years, all COVID, okay? You can learn so much. It's helpful stuff, okay? Some of it's helpful. Some of it's really unhelpful. But ultimately, the, at the end of the day, what you and I need is the presence of God giving us breath. We need a heart surgery that no power in heaven and earth can ever perform but Jesus Christ. And he poured out his spirit to, to, to take people from every nation and tribe and tongue. They are represented in this room. I am not Jewish, okay? I am whiter than sour cream, okay? And Jesus saw me before the foundations of the world. He, he said, I want that man in my family and I would give my son's life to take him and have him in my family. And it does not matter your where you came from, your political ideology, your creed, your religion, the color of your skin, whether you bleed red or blue, okay? If you are human, Jesus Christ died for your sin. If, you, if he died for your sin, even if you're a Christian, he died for your sin, whether or not you feel like you're doing amazing, you have a sense of deep communion with God the Father. Or if you're like, sometimes I don't even know if I'm saved. 
And Jesus, will, he will take people for himself. That is our hope. Guys, that's why we show up. This isn't about religion. This isn't about doing a bunch of rituals to make God show up, make ourselves feel good about ourselves, so we can climb this amazing moral, spiritual mountain so we can find out that, oh, all the things you just need to discover it inside you. <laughs> no, you don't. Do you know what's inside of you? The equivalent of spiritual dirty tampons. That's what's inside of you. And Jesus came to save. You're listening to this on the line. You're hearing this for the first time. Maybe you're hearing it for the 10th time. You need to trust that. Because judgment is coming. And you will come to the reality that your idols will not save you sooner or later. And I pray you discover that before you die. Because this is your chance. You need to turn to Jesus. You need to trust him. You need to see the immensity of his grace for you. And he will never let you go. It is more sure that God will kick Jesus out of heaven if you have trusted and put your faith in his work for you than that he will, he will ditch you. Je- Jesus will get kicked out of heaven before God the Father will let you go. Put your trust in that today. Jesus, thank you so much for this message. Thank you that you are the true son of man who prophesied to the bones, everybody who is sitting here who were once dry bones and far from you and lost in cultures and contexts and families that didn't know their right hand from their left hand, didn't know up from down. Some of us were religious, like me, (laughs) who didn't realize that it's not because of him who works or him who runs, but him who calls and that you called us out of darkness, out of the, and we ran out of that grave. Help us to trust you for that. There are people in our lives, we are standing here, we need your grace. They need your grace. We need you to bring people home, Jesus. People who are stuck, who are demonized, who are sick, who are bitter, who are lost and far from you. There are people who are stuck in, in, in materialism and political ideologies and sexual bondage. And they need rescue and they need to realize and recognize the living water that you provide. And see that that's found in a cross and the one man who represents us for you. And that you are glad to give your son for us because you're loving. trust this today and walk here full walk out of here full of hope in Jesus name